welcome to the Ad Fontes podcast. My name is Ansi Camo. I am the editor-in-chief of the Davenant Press, as well as the senior editor of the newly revamped journal Ad Fontes. So you should go check it out. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Reese Laverty, the editorial fellow at the Davenant Press. Um, listeners may be aware, or may not be aware, but Colin is on a sabbatical. He says he's researching and writing, but really he just couldn't keep up with Reese. <laughs> so we invited someone on who can. Uh, Davenant teaching fellow, uh, blogger, author, extraordinaire, Alistair Roberts. Gentlemen, it's good to be here with you. It's wonderful to join you. Yeah, nice to be back. So today we're going to be talking about something a little bit off the beaten path, I think, uh, for us, Um, although connected to Protestantism in some complicated ways. But it's the question of celibacy, but with the particular like angle of celibacy and like the intellectual life and i think this was like spurred on reese found some tweet ironically by a catholic priest uh (laughs) that was basically condemning a bunch of like you know philosophers for being celibate and having no children and was like you know this is why we can't have nice things because all of these philosophers shall i read it shall i I oh you have the tweet still oh this was months ago i I thought he lost it but yeah go for it I i won't i won't um I'll link to it. I won't, I won't name the, the account. You can go find it if you want. Childless philosophers ruin the world. Locke, Descartes, <laughs> Hobbes, Spinoza, Kant, Bacon, Rousseau, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Ayn Rand, and the follow-up, Voltaire is debatable. Um, so this um, <laughs> this kicked us off. Actually, we'll talk about Descartes. I can talk to us about Descartes if he wants, as always. Um, but yeah, that, that, that kicked off the idea, this long list of childless philosophers who are apparently responsible for um, for everything bad in life. Yeah, I'll back to you, Ansi. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, that's exactly right. And so we, we, we just kind of wanted to talk about, like, you know, that sort of claim, like, does it make sense? What are the ways in which children influence and impact our understanding of the world and how we sort of see things? Um, should we take that seriously as as a kind of uh, issue when we're reading people? You know, did they have children? Did they not have children? Um, I sort of thought the, the, the tweet was dumb, but it's an interesting question. It raises an interesting question. So um, we just thought we'd, we'd, we'd chat about it and... Um, kick it off i don't know do, you, do either of you guys have have like thoughts right off the bat um well we we, we invited alistair because he is uh kind of gender and theology um uh I, i'd say expert i don't know alistair has a bootleg book which you know that there's a it's like the snyder cut of um of the justice league <laughs> there's just a popular online movement for the release of airs together but we'll we'll skirt away from that but alistair we, we kind of asked you because you have lots of thoughts on gender when i threw this your way um, the idea that childless philosophers, you know, their childlessness impacts their philosophy, and that's kind of led to our um, the, the nadir of, of Western culture where we are. Um, what did you? What, what what leapt to mind for you? Mostly that. What are the counterexamples? Who are the really good married philosophers that are producing top-notch work? Um, most of the great philosophers throughout history have been unhappily married bad husbands or fathers they've been or they've been single and it seems to me that a lot more should be said about the space from which philosophy comes Mm. which tends to be about it tends to be a more ascetic place a place where you will generally have people who are committed to celibacy people like Aquinas or someone like that or you might think about some of the the weird types of people who that attracts you think just about any name of philosopher you think of will be either a celibate 
someone who was unhappily married, a very bad husband or father. Think about someone like Rousseau or someone who's just improvident, someone like Marx. Or you think about um, someone who was married, maybe Heidegger, and just wasn't faithful. You think about the, even the women philosophers. It's, this is not just the men. Um, how many of them had children? Iris I Murdoch think Anscombe is maybe like the only prominent female philosopher I can think of who had a bunch yep. of children and a happy marriage and was top-notch as a philosopher. There are hardly any of them. So the question is, why do the married people really, <laughs> married and um, childbearing people, really underperform in the area of philosophy? And perhaps the first person to have an opinion on that was, certainly according to the legend, was Socrates, who said that if you're lucky you'll choose a wife and have a happy marriage. And if you end up with a wife like my Xanthropy and who's a common scold, you'll end up becoming a philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. No, it is an interesting question. You know, I should have looked this up before the, the podcast, but Nietzsche has some really interesting reflections on celibacy um, because he, he, he has to kind of, he hates the celibate ideal as it sort of existed within Christianity because he sees it as this kind of, you know, self-abnegation. And, and But he, he then sort of turns that on its head and says, but there is a kind of asceticism that still represents like the, the sort of philosophy of life that he's championing and the will to power and so on. Um, and so he actually sees it as like, you know, philosophers, if I recall, someone will correct me, I'm sure. But, you know, this is kind of a... Um, an assertion of themselves that, that their childlessness is an assertion of themselves for the purposes of sort of uh, continuing their philosophical work undisturbed. Um, I don't know. What do, you, do either of you have thoughts about that that kind of angle? I mean, do you think it represents something in the will of the philosopher, or is it more um, accidental? That is to say, you know, if you're not up at two a.m., you know, with a screaming baby wiping poo off, you know, then then you just have more time to think about metaphysics or something like. I mean, like time, t- time is what immediately leaps out to me as a father of two young children who has been trying to study for the last couple of years. Like, I just have a lot less time. And I preached on 1 Corinthians 7 uh, not long ago, um, the the latter end about the betrothed. And in view of the present crisis, whether you think that's a specific famine in the first century or whether you think it's the, at some point, imminent return of Christ, whatever, um, Paul's concern there is that those who are married have worldly concerns. And that's that's not worldly in the sense of bad, but um, they've got more on their plate, whereas those who um, aren't married can devote themselves wholeheartedly to um, the things of the Lord. And again, that's not that those who are married are kind of half-arsed in their faith, but it's that they they have less time to devote to to, to the things of the Lord because um, their interests are divided, Paul says, and that's fine. What God has divided, we shouldn't try and put together. Um, but you just have a lot less time. So, yeah, I probably, I, I think dads with children probably can't plumb the depths of metaphysics, probably, probably couldn't write the Republic, probably couldn't um, uh, produce the great works of of philosophy that we've sort of touched on already um i'd rather that they were just celibate and had no kids to mess up and did that rather than were bad dads and, and like neglected Rousseau everything. or something like that yeah didn't Rousseau like send all his children off to foundlings, foundlings homes yeah. yeah right where um, most of them probably died but uh yeah, yeah. um 
yeah. I mean, considering born in, born in the, chains, one, eh? the one philosopher that we really have canonized in scripture had 300 wives and 700 concubines, maybe there's <laughs> an alternative <laughs> case there. Well, if but you're an elite, if you're Solomon's an elite, time you, management pay, you pay other people, right? You pay other people to manage your time, right? You know, it's like if, if I had that many servants, I mean, I could, you know. <laughs> but uh, maybe we could think about um, just the idea of philosophy as if we're going with Nietzsche, we could think about Apollonian and Dionysian um, tendencies and how those relate to the activity of the philosopher and the degree to which the philosopher tends to abstract him or herself from the the sort of passions and the the messy, complicating bodily activities of life and tends to tend to operate in a more abstract realm. Um, is that part of it? Mm. Well, yeah. we, we we talked a while ago about a um, an essay that we'd published in Davenant Book, um, Philosophy and the Christian Philosophy as a Way of Life, um, which was by, I'm blanking, Auntie, so it was Joe was Minnick and, and Peter Escalante co-wrote. Yeah, Minnick and Escalante, yeah. that's it. And kind of the contention in that is that maybe, and I sense maybe this is what Colin might say if he weren't here, but he might send me an irate message to say I've misrepresented his tendencies. <laughs> you got to show up. You got to show up. That's yeah. it. You want to defend yourself in person. You got to show up. So I'll caricature him and right. straw man him. Um, but yeah, is part of it the, the way that we construe philosophy as this this abstract discipline um, rather than something that is. Uh, tied into the warp and woof and the mess of life and wiping wiping a pooey bum at two in the morning or um you know cradling a teething toddler or something like that um is is the fact that we construe philosophy as this distant exercise of the life of the mind part of the problem um and yet if we go back into classical philosophy where which might might be colin's bag more you've got plato telling us to hold all children in common um in the uh <laughs> in the city of the philosophers so um, maybe not i don't think there's any kind of perfect ideal of philosophy we've lost where all the philosophers were great family guys and were getting everything um getting everything right but yeah perhaps it is that we abstract the life of the mind too much and that's why the philosophers seem to be such bad dads i don't know maybe it's also partly a matter of again the space from which people are doing philosophy not just um, in terms of individual psychology and tendencies, but also in terms of a social space, that to the degree that you can stand apart from your society and look at it almost from the outside, you will tend to go into a more philosophic mode. And I think one of the things that spurs philosophy is being a dissident or being someone who's an outsider, being someone who's thinking about social engage engagements from a very weird position. If you think about someone like Wittgenstein, trying to understand language. A normal person does not try to understand language in the sort of way that he was doing. <laughs> but yet to understand language, you almost have to be a weird person to stand outside of it and to think about things that you would never question as a question. That's actually a really interesting observation, Alistair. I mean, just anecdotally speaking, you know, for myself, it's been really interesting to see the way that having children, and I've talked about this with my wife, Elena, but the way that having children has uh, so much more tightly integrated us into uh, the community. You know, you just, th th there's a kind of uh, fellowship that is kind of genuine and spontaneous that arises between you and other parents when you see them around, 
or when other people who have children, they kind of, and, and, and there's this kind of um, fellow feeling that you just sort of have uh, as a parent for other parents, um, which, which I have to say, at least um, sometimes I'm conscious of it, but I suspect even, you know, when I'm not conscious of it, uh, integrates me um, into the life of the community in a way that I, I, that was very surprising to me when, when we first had children. Um, and so that, that is kind of, I wonder if, if that, you know, to your point, um, is, is a factor in, in the kind of, um, way that people who have families don't stand apart. You know, if you have a healthy sort of family life, you don't, you're not aloof from the community in, in, in quite the same way that you might need to be if, if you're, you know, if you're a good philosopher. Um, one, one sort of interesting question, and I'd be curious to see what you guys think about this too, is that the, the sort of ascetic, um, childless ideal, so to speak, uh, doesn't seem to obtain quite so strongly in the discipline of theology. Um, that is to say, most of the great theologians, um, particularly prior to the Reformation, were celibate, to be sure. You know, I mean, St. Augustine, St. Thomas, most of the fathers. Um, but uh, once the Reformation sort of occurs, and for all the reasons that the Reformation did this, you know, you, you don't have the celibate ideal in Protestantism anymore. Um, but but you have, you know, some of the greatest Protestant theologians are not only married, but but seem fairly happily married. I mean, Luther, you know, seems by all accounts to have had a pretty good family life. Um, Calvin, I think, um, you know, had, I think there was some some pain and suffering in his family life uh, with, yeah, with he, children Calvin and so of, on. He, he, was, he was like, I'm too busy to get married. But then he got to 30, he was like, I should probably have a wife. I should I get married, yeah. And, and he yeah. did. And I think they, you know, their marriage seems to have been been okay from what I've read. So, yeah, she, she was a widow, his wife. Um, Adelette, I think her name's, and she had two children from previous marriage. I think all of their natural children died um, right. in infancy, certainly a son. Um, John Owen lost eight children in infancy, didn't he? And then mm-hmm. lost a further one early in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I, I don't know. I mean, do you think, I mean, maybe Luther is a sort of great exception because obviously, I mean, like, you know, you think about Karl Barth and his family life was a total disaster. Um, yeah. But... Um, well, the worst, well, not the worst, but one that sticks in my mind, I think I, I used this when I preached on 1 Corinthians 7, A.W. Tozer, um, who is a sort of hero of kind of low, low church um, devotional theology, but he was like a, he was a big mystic and kind of got really into medieval and I think pre-medieval mysticism. Tozer was a total addict, he just travelled, had this sprawling ministry, um, and his wife would do, uh, remarried after he died, this guy called Leonard Odom, and she said, uh, A.W. Tozer, she didn't call him that, whatever his first name was, Tozer loved Christ, uh, but Leonard loved me. Hmm. Um, that, that, that should like, that should haunt any husband yeah. who has well, Luther, like Luther, any ministry commitment. Yeah, yeah. Luther has this line where he says that he, he's critiquing pseudo Dionysius, and he says, you know, why would anyone think that you could be a theologian by performing mental operations? And he says, no, you you become a theologian by living and like suffering or something like that, like by living. So I, I mean, I wonder, Alistair, do you buy that, that we can kind of, that there's some sort of distinction in disciplines and, and um, theology seems more amenable somehow to, to family life? Or do you think that that's, you know, there are a couple of major exceptions, but but on the whole, the, the rule sort of obtains? I think that's probably true, that um, it is more amenable to family life. Although when we're talking about these things, I think often 
the question is not necessarily for the individual life. It can be more about the social life of the community. To what extent are people who are committed to a more ascetic form of life knit into a wider community where there are people engaged in other sorts of far more concrete worldly vocations? That's one question that I think, um, again, one of the problems that I think you see with different types of philosophy. On one hand, you have those who are within a vocation that's celibate and who are knit into a wider vision of what that involves. And then there are others who are just unsuited for marriage and end up in unhappy, dysfunctional situations when they get married or they fail to get married. And there's no sense of vocation to that. And that, I think, is maybe something that we need to think about, that even when there is this tendency in these philosophers are weird people. And I think you need to be a weird person to stand back from your society, to think about issues in that way that makes them strange and loses the familiarity of them. I think also the tendency to decouple. People generally struggle to people have called decouple. So you can take concepts that would be very threatening or um, something that ideas that have a lot of emotional salience and actually sap them of that emotional value and just view them as abstract logical propositions and think them through in that way. A philosopher has to be fairly good at that to unpack and pick things apart and to think about things not just in terms of their emotional salience, but to think about them in terms of their intrinsic logic, the skeleton of what holds them together. And philosophy tend to tends to occur in a sort of bloodless place for that reason. Mm-hmm. I think it needs to. I mean, if you can think about some of the dangerous ideas that ph- philosophers think about, there almost needs to be a place where there is a sort of radioactive shield around some of these ideas. If you have these ideas too close to regular daily life, <laughs> it, they can actually spread and cause all sorts of problems. This sort of lab leak from the philosophers. Um, right. And then you, you end do, up like You Socrates. do need to manage these ideas carefully. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. I wonder whether we need to think about the way that people manage their lives and their communities where you can have the activity of philosophy that is informed by these other activities within the community. Someone like Aquinas, I don't think, is a completely unworldly man, um, nor is someone like Augustine or someone like that. They're informed by a wider world and engagement within it. Augustine is a bishop. He's not just someone who's sitting in an ivory tower, abstracted from life. But at the same time, the activity of philosophy that he's engaging in does need to have something of a distance, something of an abstraction, something of a, a decoupling from the regular day-to-day life and passions and activities that tend to preoccupy us. Which is why it's very curious when you have another philosopher leapt to mind who seems to have had a long and happy marriage and raised children, Peter Singer, who's Australian moral philosopher is is that so that's fascinating yeah i was when alistair was talking about the radioactive shield i was like that's exactly right peter singer needs the radioactive shield yeah to talk about his horrendous yeah exactly his horrendous judgments on you know what what what, the relative value of human life to different kinds of animal life um and then you read yeah he's been married for decades and and published with his wife and has raised three adult children maybe they hate their dad and think he's crazy i don't know um but um it's weird then to think okay he would you know at times save an intelligent ape rather than you know a human being who is impinged by whatever medical condition um it's very odd then to like 
see him with his family and with, and probably grandchildren. Um, is it? He's saying you know philosophers they tend to be those who step back, who look, who kind of deconstruct. Um, one of the things lying behind that question about whether these childless philosophers have kind of ruined everything is that question of does having children uh, give you a, a stake in the future and in what you're building? Because I guess theologians are often pastors as well, involved in pastoral ministry. They are thinking about the needs of their community, building things, passing something on, whereas philosophers, maybe you know, those, those are modern philosophers who we started off with anyway, are often kind of deconstructing and tearing down maybe trying to build like you know pure reason in place of you know the religious world that they were sort of um trying to move on from in the enlightenment but is it a real thing that those who have children genuinely think ahead and are thinking how these things are going to play out because like jd vance a while ago like made some of the headlines when he, he was criticizing the childless left and named all these big leftist politicians in america who have no kids um and if, even when i watch, if I watch property so, programs that's just such like a con- oh man that's like wow that's, it was it yeah oh, that was amusing okay. it's far more of an issue and it's far more of an issue in europe um, yeah, well, and I don't know if Alice remembers when Theresa May was running for the Tory leadership. She was up against Andrea Leadsom, who's an English MP Americans have probably never heard of. But Andrea Leadsom said when they were down to the last two, I'll be a better prime minister because I have children. Um, and so I've got a stake in, I think it was literally, I've got a stake in the future of the country. And that was so scandalous. Like, I think that, I don't think she'd have won anyway, but that massively hampered her her running against Theresa May, who, yeah, doesn't have doesn't have children and has had a long and distinguished political career. Um, so is does that hold that, you know, if you don't have kids, you're not really thinking ahead for a kind of concrete stake in future and the impact your ideas are going to have? Or, you know, is that a, is that a bit of a fallacy? I don't think that's necessarily the case, but I do think that the way that you are invested in the future will be profoundly affected by whether or not you have kids. And so it's not a matter of whether or not you are, it's how you are. Um, For many people, if they lack kids, they won't be invested in the future. But I think many of the philosophers had deep sense of posterity and what they were invested in and a vision for their community at large. But you can think about this maybe in terms of the idea of the eunuch. The eunuch is invested in the future of the kingdom because that's where his legacy is to be found. He has no kids of his own, and so he's going to be invested in the dynasty. If you think about the case of a You're thinking of Game of Thrones there. That's, that, if that's, <laughs> that is Varys. I serve the realm. He has no one else to serve. So. And it seems to me that's, that's the way some people can think. Um, you're invested in your vision for society or whatever. You can might also think about the way that... The way that people are invested in... The future, for instance, someone who's a young man who goes to war, has no children, has no wife, he can be invested in the future. He can have a sense of his own personal sacrifice for the future of his nation, for his family and community, and he's laying down his life for that. There's a sense in which he enters more fully into the history and the corporate life of his country in that very act of putting his life on the line. If you think about someone who has children, there is a movement beyond the immediacy of your own generation and a sense of an investment where you are deeply associated and um, connected with the destiny of your child. How your child or your children turn out is part of your own sense of how you turn out, of what 
they bring into the future. They're bringing part of you into the future. And you're very concerned about what they bring of you into the future. And so, again, there's a sense of being invested in the future in a particular way. And so I would think about it more that way. Um, how is the philosopher invested in the future? And maybe the philosopher is invested less in terms of their particular child and more in terms of something more general. Um, if you have a vision for society, if you have some sort of um, sense of what the world is and humanity's place within it, is the vision of the parent and their investment in the future, which is very particular, one that's as apt for philosophy as the person who's seeking a more general investment, a future, an investment in humanity's more general future? That's, that's, that's a very interesting uh, point, the sort of different postures that we have toward the future. Another thing to consider, I was just thinking about this as we were talking about, um, you know, death of children. Um, and, and this probably changes one's posture toward the future as well as one sort of uh, uh, the self-understanding one has about how one relates to society and to the rest of the community, but is the death of philosophers' children, right? So, you know, I mean, um, St. Augustine fathered a child um, who died. Um, I believe he, I mean, obviously he fathered the child prior to his conversion to Christianity, but I, I think the child died maybe soon after his conversion. I don't, I don't exactly recall. Um, uh, Descartes um, had a child uh, who tragically died. Um, and when the child's mother died, you know, Descartes was sort of distraught. Um, so is there, is there also, a, um, I mean, do we, when we think about sort of the, the, the sort of two questions that we have right now, which is how does the philosopher relate to the community? Um, and the other, how does, what is the posture of the philosopher with respect to the future? What role does, does, um, not simply the lack of a family, but a kind of tragic family history, you know, play in, um, how, how, um, we should think about those two questions. Um, I mean, um, I, I don't know. Do you, do you do either of you have thoughts about about that? Um, is that like a, a, a further sort of alienating factor for a philosopher, or or something else going on there? I don't think necessarily. To 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 th example that leaps to mind is would be Kierkegaard, who writes Fear and Trembling. Um, which is this sort of long meditation on um, the binding of Isaac and the, the kind of mystery of that that kind of faith to him, which really Kierkegaard was a bit of a mystery. We've talked about that on here before, but was kind of f flowed out of um, a traumatic abortive engagement of his. Um, now, Kierkegaard was in that list I read out at the start. I think he's sort of unfairly uh, unfairly included in there. Um well, I mean, I think I think the, the the whole list is sort of unfair. I mean, just maligning yeah. brilliant, wonderful correlations left and right. I mean, this is yeah. terrible. Uh, um, but um, I mean, Kierkegaard is fairly can be fairly individualistic, individualistic, I guess, as a kind of father of existentialism. But um, I don't think his work is just him working out his own individualistic issues, but he's offering up what he thinks is a, a genuine meditation on the nature of faith in the service of the church and Kierkegaard, I think appreciate as a really Christian philosopher, we've actually hopefully got a piece about Kierkegaard and the Eucharist coming up in Advantes in the near future. Um, that one might, um, foreground that idea a bit more. So, um, 
Yeah, when we find those tragedies in philosophers, it will vary from, from each one. But Kierkegaard leaps to mind as someone who wrote out of a very personal tragedy, not a loss of a child, but loss of an engagement, and I guess from that, loss of any future children. Um, but I guess used that tragedy fruitfully, invested that suffering um, in his philosophy. But, but I'm sure we can find other examples of people whose you know philosophy was just driven by their personal trauma. Might also be worth thinking about the different sort of adjacent fields and activities to philosophy the way in which people can be i don't know their philosophy can take on a more psychoanalytic flavor or maybe the relationship between theology and developing a system and then a more pastoral vision of theology and i think often experiencing deep personal tragedy can lead people to move in those sorts of directions um to recognize recognize the importance of connecting their philosophy with the very immediate problems of life and how to navigate crisis and tragedy. Um, But it seems to me that that will have an impact upon people. But often philosophy itself is a compartmentalized activity, whether by cause of the person's weird personality, whether by cause of the social space in which it's being done, or whether simply because the person has compartmentalised it to part of their life, which is detached from others. Um, a lot of philosophy needs to... There needs to be a certain detachment from the immediacy of the questions of, of living to be able to think well towards those... serving those questions in the longer term. I think a lot of great scientists would also fit into some of these categories. I mean, think of something like Newton or even someone like... Um, Einstein, who didn't have children. It it seems to me that these are examples of people who are thinking in a certain way that even when they experience crisis, the thought is taking place in contexts and in ways that don't easily knit into that. And so sometimes it might spur them to think about how to do that. At other times, people just retreat into their work and they find that a comfort. Um, so... I'm not sure there's any consistent response. I think often people can respond to personal crisis and tragedy and relating that to their work in different ways. For some, the very compartmentalised character of the work will be a relief from the personal crisis. Hmm. No, that's, that's very helpful. Well, um, I, you know, I think, Alistair, you've given me a lot to, a lot to think about. Uh, I'm like, you know, I, I have two children of my own, so now I'm trying to think out like, okay, well, clearly I should go into theology because there's still hope that I can accomplish yeah. great things. Philosophy's, philosophy's off the table. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. But um, but uh, I don't know. Do either of you have any final thoughts before we move into the what we're reading section? Um, just as reading around but before this, um, a thought that I came across somewhere else and then kind of read into is in, in, in spite of kind of how much we found to say about this uh we, we talked obviously mainly about male philosophers it'd be another episode on why why it's mainly men um it's certainly what, what why is it still mainly men anyway in philosophy um but fatherhood is a very under um philosophized topic in the grand scheme of things consider how many of these men we've mentioned have been f- bad fathers and they are remarkably reticent to kind of philosophize and theologize about fatherhood and Montaigne one of his essays is uh on 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 the affections of of fathers to their children something to to that extent um 
And he even says, it's one of the few kind of real philosophical treatments I could find on fatherhood. And he even says at the start, I wrote about this because I couldn't really think of anything else to write about. And Montaigne like, locked himself away in his tower for 10 years just, just to write. And he clearly, like on a wet Sunday afternoon, was like, I literally can't think of anything else to write about. So I decided to write about fatherhood. Um, uh, and it's a relatively short essay. And he sort of says a lot about how he doesn't like small children being weaned around him and stuff like that um, <laughs> <laughs> which is like oh t- t- typical philosopher but actually I thought that I inspired a lot in that essay I, d- I didn't like he takes issue with people treating children like pets and he said the, ma- the, ma- the main way we tend to think about children is as these small lovely things um, to be doted over but often then when they get older we withdraw from them um, and we kind of yearn for when they were little and cute and easy. Um, and he takes really issue with that, which Al- something Alistair talks about a lot is is the fact that sonship, certainly in scripture, is not just about being a baby and saying dada to God, but it's about raising a mature son who goes out into the world and kind of takes your characteristics out into the world and becomes a representative of the family. Montaigne has a bit of that um, when it comes to thinking about fatherhood, that um, I think philosophers maybe find children a bit distasteful because we only think of them as, as infantile rather than as sons to be raised, daughters to be raised, humans to be matured. Um, so that just struck me as that might be a reason why we find family life and children kind of getting short shrift in the history of philosophy because they have this same kind of um, um, infantilized view of, of sonship and childhood that um, Alistair's kind of picked out really well at, at different points in his writing. Yeah, Alistair, did that, did that strike any chords with you? Yeah, I, I think for me, one of the issues that it brings me back to is there's something deeply unhealthy about the way that the philosophers tend to lead their own lives. They're not models for society more generally, but the way that they lead their, lead their lives often provides a space for which, um, in which good thought can take place. The sort of rigorous decoupling thought that needs to take place if we're going to take things apart and think about them carefully in their different component elements. The integrative work of life, however, is of a different variety. And that, I think, requires people to marry, have children, raise children, be part of communities committed to that. And that, I think, is where theology is is different. Because theology, by its very nature, has a community of practice attached to it. The philosopher can have a school, but they don't necessarily have liturgies, communities of practice. They can talk to questions of ethics, but often in a way that's very abstract and detached from any community that's committed to performing those ethics and living in a way that's bound by those. Whereas Christians don't have that luxury. So if you're a Christian theologian, you will be judged according to your consistency with your beliefs and your philosophical claims. You actually have to live in terms of this. This is not just some abstract ideas. And where there is a theologian who's doing their work in a more abstract way, which I think will often be necessary, they are nonetheless tied into a community responsible to, and sometimes also for, a community. And as a result, I think there is a healthy tethering of the activity, philosophical-like activity of theology, to very concrete practices of community, family, and orientation towards the future in concrete ways, not just in abstract visions for society. And so if we're going to do philosophy well, I think it will be under Her Majesty the Queen of the Sciences. <laughs> no, that's, 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 that's excellent. I think my, my final thought, uh, and this is just kind of occurring to me now, but my final thought um, 
I wonder whether, so we have the kind of ecclesial orientation of theology as a reason why, you know, family life and theology can be more successfully integrated, right? Because theology is already oriented towards the lives of particular persons and particular communities and the goods that those, you know, it pursues goods for those, for those uh, people and communities. But it also seems to me... um, I mean, there are a couple of things that I think Luther has helped me see about family life and theology. I mean, there was that quote, you know, earlier that I was talking about that, you know, where Luther, you know, says it's it's not sort of performing mental operations that makes a theologian. It's 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 um, knowledge of Christ and and particularly suffering um, that makes a theologian. And it, it, it seems to me that the family can be a site of a, a great deal of joy and, and goodness and so on, but also um, a site of suffering, right? A site of, of, of painful labor, a site of toil. Um, you know, family life comes under the curse in, in, in Genesis, right? The, 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 the pain in childbirth and then the, the difficulty, you know, um, securing food for the family and so on. And so, um, and yet nevertheless, the family life falls under, you know, is established by, ordained by, and is therefore blessed by God. Right, and so Luther holds both of these together: that the family is the site of, can be the site of, of pain and suffering, and yet simultaneously that this suffering, um, uh, 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 we should be confident that in our labors for our families, we're we're doing things in accordance with God's will, which brings us closer to God, who is, of course, the the source and, and norm of, of all theology. So I wonder if that 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 might also um, I need to I need to reflect on that a little bit more. But yeah, all right, well. That's uh, that's it for the main topic. We're going to move into what we've been reading. Um, we've been on hiatus for like a month, so uh, Alistair didn't know that. But Reese, that means you better have a great book prepped for this episode. So we're going to start with you. I do have one, although like you know, we had our first family holiday with two children, and it's very different to going on holiday <laughs> with one child. I bought my hand luggage was just books. Uh, and I was hugely optimistic about. Did you make it through like a third <laughs> of one of them or something? No, yeah. I got I got through almost the whole of one of, of, one okay, of the ones okay. I really wanted to read, which is what I'll talk about. Uh, the Light Ages by Seb uh, Falk or Falk, not you say it like as in like Falklands, but. Um, without Lunds. Um, uh, uh, the Light Ages, A journey, journey of Medieval Discovery, I think it's a subtitle. And um, it is um, an excellent book, Penguin, fairly accessible, um, takes issue with the idea that the uh, Dark Ages were dark and that medieval science was was just ignorant uh, people thinking the earth was flat um, and shows that actually the medieval era um, was this incredible era of scientific discovery, um, mainly in the area of astronomy he follows, but stretches into medicine and um, geography and other things, um, kind of following the uh, trail of this uh, little-known monk called John Westwick, um, who was in uh, uh, England in the 1300s, um, and the remarkable kind of astronomical tools that they um, created to map the heavens. Um, the idea that they thought the Earth was flat is absurd because it would take a monk about five minutes of astronomy to to realise that, in fact, the Earth is round. Um, the um, you know the fact that the latitude and longitude of the stars are different at St Albans as the, and, than they are at Tynemouth Abbey, miles to the north. I'm like, oh, OK, well, clearly the Earth is round. Um, now, they yeah, they thought the Earth was the centre of the universe, but, you know, gradually you see medieval astronomy as this process <laughs> of kind of getting to Copernicus and being like, okay, why does nothing add up? Why why are all these um, things just slightly off? And then Copernicus comes along and, and everything make, makes a lot more sense. Um, but really informative, lots of interesting historical stuff. Um, 
it made me realise I'm really bad at science. Like the first proper scientific <laughs> thing I've probably read since like GCSE physics. And I was like, I'm bad at science. And medieval monks were way better at it than I am. Um, so yeah, okay. I've, ne- I've, ne- well, I've nearly finished it. Well, Reese, this is this is the last time we're going to allow you to talk about how great the Middle Ages actually were, because Protestants worked really hard uh, in the early modern and modern periods to make everyone think that they were terrible and backwards. That's like you know a product of Protestant polemics, and we at the Davenant Institute are are proud proud Protestants. Uh, no, I'm just kidding, obviously, but. Uh, yeah, no, that, that sounds great. Um, and what's the title? I mean, obviously, it'll be in the show notes for, for our listeners who are interested. Um, yeah, I'll put it, put it in the show notes. And a reminder, if you if you click through to bookshop.org, which is where most of our links go um, for a book that we've mentioned, and you buy it through that link, then we do get a small commission for recommendations. Uh, it's called The Light Ages, uh, A Journey of Medieval Discovery. I think it's a subtitle by Seb Falk. Um, yeah, really fun. It's like 300 pages, fairly accessible, apart from, depending on your level of scientific ability, when it, once it gets into, you know, the, the movements of the heavens and, and and things like that where it lost me a bit but uh, I, I enjoyed it nonetheless yeah very good all right alistair what have you been reading mostly been reading on the book of joel over the last few days so james crenshaw i've been reading christopher seitz um from john barton um trying to think who else several others i've been consulting but those are the main ones i've been reading through and um, leslie allen um and trying to work out questions like is the locust plague a locust plague or is it some symbol of something else those sorts of questions <laughs> any any can you tell us about the locust plague any decided i think that all i think all of, of those commentators are wrong on the question <laughs> <laughs> my my inclination and it is not a settled it's not a 100% certain opinion but my inclination is to read it as a symbol of the waves of judgment from Babylon upon Jerusalem prior to its downfall. Okay, well, and ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Everyone else is wrong. Alistair has, has given us the... Uh, has of descended. the commentators I mentioned. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. He's descended so from the true. mountain and given us the truth. So, um, uh, uh, um, And also, the locust plague is not the Babylonians. It's the Lord himself bringing the judgment of his sort of living storm cloud (laughs) okay very good well for my part i've been reading a book called um america's great game which is a history of the cia particularly um with respect to its operations in the middle east and a lot of the sort of founding uh members of the cia um it's really kind of an interesting story they're all like missionary kids you know i think i've mentioned before i don't know on this podcast (laughs) but um no really they're they're all most of the CIA We're dangerous people in the <laughs> in the middle. We've been East. talking about weirdos this whole episode. So. My 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 mom always my mom's a missionary kid, and she always told me, you know, sometimes you meet missionary kids, and you just never, you know. I mean, Alistair, I know you. We just know. You just kids, know. You so. can just tell, and then they tell you they're a missionary kid. You're like, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And of course you are. Something adds up. But um, but no, they're they're all children of of um, like 19th century Protestant missionaries who go to the Middle East and uh, children and grandchildren and. Um, descendants two descendants of of teddy roosevelt play a major role they kind of um in in the middle east uh in the beginning of the cia it's amazing too you know we we think like through popular culture and media and stuff that like intelligence agencies are like these you know extraordinarily sophisticated brilliant people you know daring whatever but at the beginning of the cia mi6 
because uh, England had been the, the, the British Empire had been doing covert operations for much longer than Americans ever had because we weren't a world power, and they're just like, oh man, with the Americans, it's it's amateur hour. They just they just bumble around the Middle East. At one point, um, the Egyptian president Nasser uh, started making bets with one of his CIA friends about where and when the next CIA coup would be because they they were so transparent to everyone. Their operations were so <laughs> so uh, transparent. So it's just kind of fun. I mean, it's it's totally horrifying when you realize that like these amateurs like you know ruined an entire region for a generation but uh but uh, anyway so it's been it's been a very interesting read i would highly recommend it america's great mm-hmm. game um all right well we're also going to be spotlighting um something and because we are generous co-hosts uh reese and i have asked alistair to spotlight himself and particularly uh what he's up to with uh davenant hall in the coming the coming term. So, Alistair, would you would you say a few words about um, the class that you're teaching? So, yes, um, Brad, Little John, and I have already taught this course once before. So, this is going to be a new and improved version. One that takes the lessons that we had from the first time, improves them, and adds in lots of new material and new thoughts. And it's a course on natural law and scriptural authority. So, we're giving people a grip upon the biblical text and also upon how you view the world in the other hand. So bringing the world and the scriptures into a fruitful interaction. I found it an incredibly stimulating course. There's lots of discussion and interaction with students. Students will, at the end of it, have a a much richer, I think, understanding of how we relate to some of the broader questions that we're asking in a podcast like this and thinking about the way in which the scripture can speak to every single area of life without necessarily being the sort of worldviewism that has been popular in many Christian circles in the past. So there's going to be lots of training in natural law, but then my part of the course um, is focusing very much upon actually how that works out in scripture itself. So a sort of scriptural doctrine of natural law and then how scripture itself can inform and give us a greater grip and grasp upon natural law so that we can speak to questions of natural law with the light of scripture upon them. Okay. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And Reese will have the link to the webpage for that so that you can go register um, do you, do either of you remember off the top of your head what the deadline is, the registration yeah, t- deadline t- is? 10th of September um, is the registration deadline for uh, fall term courses. Well, autumn term, I'll say I can't, fall term. Autumn term. I'll write, I'll write it, I won't say it. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes, okay. So this, this... You're this, outnumbered this, by Brits. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So we <laughs> default, default to autumn. Recolonize. Uh, yeah, this episode should be out at the start of September, so you should have a little while to um, to register. Yeah. Okay, very good, very good. Um, well, thank you all. Uh, thank you to our listeners. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you like our conversation, if you want others to be able to participate in it, uh, please give us a five-star review on iTunes. Um, if you have any critiques or, or, or comments uh, of a less-than-adulatory nature, I would just ask that you you choose, you know, write us a note. Tell us your favorite philosopher with children. And if you can come up with an example, send us the note and you can complain there and we will take your take your comments very seriously. But uh, until next time, this is the Ad Fontes podcast. We are the editors and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.